We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. If you're asking questions about God, your faith, or the meaning and purpose of life, we would love to connect with you. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We hope this sermon encourages you today. With Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement ritual, we actually get to the center of the book of Leviticus and the center of the entire Sinai narrative, which starts in Exodus 19, when the people of God go through the wilderness and get to the mountain of Sinai. They stay there all the way through Numbers chapter 10. And this is the center point of that narrative. And it's also the theological and literary center of the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which we call sometimes the books of Moses or the Torah. Uh, We've arrived today at the center of all of this. And in many ways, this will be a culmination of what we've done in the series on Leviticus up to this point, because we've covered some of these themes, of course, on atonement and other things up um, as we've looked at the first 15 chapters. The placement of this Ritual here at the center of Leviticus is no accident by any means because this is the ultimate action of atonement that enables life in God's holy and life-giving presence. In the words of Old Testament scholar Michael Morales, atonement is at the heart of the Pentateuch because atonement is the doorway to life with God. And here in Leviticus chapter 16, that doorway is most open For here we find, as Morales observes, humanity's deepest penetration into the divine presence. God with man, man with God. That is what the covenant is about. And here we see it ritually and symbolically fulfilled on the Day of Atonement. Uh, We long for God's presence. Most of you probably don't long to be experts at Leviticus regulations and rituals and laws, but we do all long for God's presence deeply. Whether we can articulate that or not, underneath all of our longings, all of our desires, all of our hopes, there is one common impulse, one common longing that is deeply lodged within every human heart, and it is a longing for God, a longing for our Creator, the one who made us. And the great news of Leviticus, as we've seen in this series, is that as much as we long for God, God longs to be with us. God longs to be with his people. And God, in his grace and mercy and abundant uh, provision, has made a way for us to dwell in his holy presence, despite the fact that that holy presence is dangerous to impure and sinful people like us. God has made a way for us to dwell with him. He's made a way for us to be in his fiery presence, much like perhaps the bush that, that God appeared in to Moses in the wilderness, which was burning up in fire but never consumed. We too can have presence uh, in, the, in the fiery presence of God and not be consumed because of God's mercy and grace. And everything that we've looked at in Leviticus up to this point, and if you haven't been here for the series, I hope you'll get, a, you'll get into this with us today. But everything that we've seen, all of the confusing and foreign to us ritual and regulation, is all just God's gracious and merciful provision for people like us to come into his holy presence, to dwell with him. 
Leviticus is a book of gospel, of good news that God has made a way where there was otherwise no way for us to be in his presence. And all of this, of course, that God provides for his people in Leviticus and the Old Covenant, as we've seen in the series, points us to his greater provision of atonement, of, of a way to him and in his presence with his, son, with his son Jesus, which, of course, is where we will end our time this morning. So Leviticus 16 is all about the way to enter God's presence. But step out of that way that God has provided, and there is actually no protection for us anymore. In fact, the backdrop of this ritual, the Day of Atonement ritual in Leviticus 16, is the troubling and fear-inducing and sobering event of Leviticus chapter 10, when Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, enter into the presence of the Lord uninvited and bring strange fire and are immediately consumed. They've been dragged, their bodies have been dragged after defiling, of course, the temple with corpse impurity. They've been, they've been dragged out of the temple. And that's the backdrop. Look with me, and I would encourage you to have Leviticus 16 open in front of you. I think it's on page 95 in the Bibles, in the pews. But look at how this chapter begins. It begins, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. So already it's saying this is the context this sobering event of chapter 10. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 2, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, what we would call the holy of holies, before the mercy seat or the atonement cover. I prefer atonement cover because of the continued link with the word atonement. They come from the same root, and that's the way the NIV translates it before the atonement cover that is on the ark so that they may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. So what, what do I want to point out here as we just still begin this intro? The first is um, God tells Aaron through Moses not to come at any time. Did you see that in verse 2? Not to come at any time. Well, the sin of Nadab and Abihu was that they came uninvited. They came at the wrong time into the Lord's presence. And the second thing to notice is in verse 3. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. So not only did Nadab and Abihu come at the wrong time, they came in the wrong way as well. So instead of coming in the wrong way like your sons did, Aaron, come in this way, the right way. They brought strange fire. You're not to do that. So not at any time and not in any way but rather come into the presence of the Lord at the appointed time. If we were to go to the end of Leviticus 16, in verse, in verse 34, we learn that this event happens once in the year, one day a year. And in verse 29, we learn that that day is the 10th day of the seventh month. So not at any time, but at the appointed time, one day a year, and not in any way, not the way that you choose, the way that you want to come, but in this way, the divinely ordained way to enter into the presence of God. And in many ways, that's what Leviticus 16 is all about. It's about the divinely appointed way to enter in to the divine presence, to be most proximate to God. So as we consider Leviticus 16 this morning, uh, we want to do so in three parts. First, look at the full atonement which it accomplishes. Then second, how it accomplishes that atonement. And then third, what it points to. So the full atonement, it accomplishes how it accomplishes that atonement, and then what it points to. 
So first, the full atonement that it accomplishes. The concept of atonement, remember, has two basic ideas. One of cleansing or purification, and the second is of ransom. The one, cleansing and purification, deals with the defilement of sin and impurity upon our lives. The second of ransom deals with the consequence, the guilt of sin, and its just consequence before the justice of God in our lives. And both of these elements are part of what we mean when we say atonement, and both are addressed actually in Leviticus 16. The leading edge, of course, though, is purification because this ritual purifies both the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, and the people of God as well. So stay with me with regard to the tabernacle. Remember that sin and impurity in the people of God leads to a kind of unholy dust or an unholy mold that begins to grow on the dwelling place of God or the dust that begins to settle. And sin and impurity in God's people brings about this pollution of God's dwelling place that threatens the ongoing presence of God in their midst by defiling his dwelling. And so one dimension of atonement, it's harder for us to access today, is the cleansing of the dwelling place of God. And that's what we see in Leviticus 16. Actually, this is the leading edge of Leviticus 16. Look at verse 16. Thus, the high priest, he shall make atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he, he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. And then further down in verse 20, uh, we have reference both the holy place, or that would be the holy of holies, the tent of meeting, which would be the holy place, and the altar in the courtyard are all atoned for. So God's dwelling place is cleansed by the work of this day. In addition, though, to the purification of the dwelling place of God, the atonement of this day actually purifies the people of God as well. Look with me at verse 30. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So what makes this day so unique? We've, we've encountered atonement already throughout Leviticus, particularly in the sacrificial chapters about the offerings in chapters 1 through 7. But what makes this day so unique is that the defilement on both God's dwelling and on their lives from all their sin is atoned. The purification and reparation offerings in chapters 4, 5, and 6 dealt with unintentional sins, dealt with some sins of omission, and dealt with some minor sins of commission against their neighbor. What's unique in Leviticus 16 is the emphasis upon all Israel's sins and the defilement from those sins being cleansed, both known and unknown, sins of omission and commission, sins minor and sins major. Look again at verse 21. We'll come to this ritual in a moment about the scapegoat, but the high priest lays both of his hands on the head of the live goat, verse 21, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. Those are comprehensive words addressing three different terms in Hebrew used for this kind of rebellion and impurity that is sin and missing the mark of what God has designed. By offering this cleansing, God enables his ongoing and life-giving presence to remain safely among his people. One writer calls the Day of Atonement a kind of spiritual spring cleaning. You know, the dust and mildew has built up over the months 
And here comes this annual ritual to bring about a genuine spring cleaning spiritually. Another scholar refers to this day as a kind of reboot of the system day. How many of you have had troubles with your computer or cell phone and somebody just says, hey, have you tried turning it off and then turning it back on? We all know that works well. And this is that kind of reboot in the nation of Israel to reboot their relationship, their covenant with their God. So that's what's going on here in his great love. And we should never miss this point that all of the ritual of all of Leviticus, but especially here in chapter 16, is a manifestation of the great love and grace and mercy of God for his people, for his wayward, sinful, and broken people. God in his great love has made a way to deal with Israel's sin, all of Israel's sin, so that they might remain in the life-giving presence of God. This is about full atonement. So let's turn secondly to think, well, how does this atonement come about? How is this accomplished? And there are three phases in Leviticus 16. And three times, doing something three times was a way of emphasizing that action. So the three phases emphasize the thorough and complete nature of the cleansing that this ritual of atonement provides from the Lord. So phase one. Phase one is a purification or sin offering. We've been calling it a purification offering. A bull for Aaron and his family and two goats in verse five for the congregation of the people. Now, before the purification offering takes place, Aaron needs to bathe. He is kind of ridding himself of any accumulation of things in the, in the uh, common world out there as he comes into the holy presence of God. So he bathes. And what else does he do in verse 4? He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. Now, what's different here? He takes off his regal garments his high priestly, uh, the garments that God had intended and made for him, he takes these off because they have kingly overtones. And he puts on simple holy linen garments. This is a day of confession. It's a day of recalling and bringing to mind before the Lord the sin of both Aaron and his family and all the people of Israel. And so it's not perhaps a day that's appropriate to don the regal garments that the high priest would normally wear, but he's instructed to put on these simple humble linen garments. And then in verse 11, Aaron shall present the bull as a purification offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. But before he does that, he, and he, he's to bring that, the blood of this bull into the holy of holies. He is to take a censer, that is a, a, some kind of metal object with some, fi- some coals from the altar or fire in the courtyard, and, and two handfuls of incense, of sweet incense, beaten small, verse 12, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the atonement cover that is over the testimony so that he does not die. So this is before he brings the blood from the purification offering in. Well, what's going on here? Uh, two things, I think, about this this incense and the cloud that it creates. The cloud represents both the very presence of the Lord. So look back with me at verse two, at the end of verse two, for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover or the mercy seat as the ESV translates it. And this cloud also creates a kind of protective buffer for Aaron to be in the very presence of the Holy Lord of glory 
As we just read in verse 13, the cloud creates this kind of space that, that in, in a sense shields Aaron so that he does not die. Verse 13. So now cleansed in humble clothing, in the presence of the Lord of glory, Aaron brings in the blood from the bowl and sprinkles it on the front of the atonement cover on the east side. This is verse 14. And then again in front of the atonement cover seven times. Now the, the, the significance of seven times, seven is an, again a number of completion and wholeness. And what that suggests is this is a thorough cleansing, a thorough purification of the Holy of Holies from the defilement of Israel's sin. That same blood manipulation rite, we've seen it before in the sacrifices, the same manipulation of blood of sprinkling it here seven times goes on then in the Holy of Holies, likely putting blood on the horns of the golden altar of incense and then sprinkling blood seven times. And then he goes further out to the outer uh, ring of the tabernacle precincts in the courtyard to the ascension offering altar and also puts blood on the horns of that altar and sprinkles the blood seven times in front of that altar. All of this is cleansing the tabernacle complex from the defilement of Israel's known and unknown, unintentional and intentional sin to purify God's dwelling place. So that's phase one. Phase two is the scapegoat ritual. The two male goats mentioned in verse 5. Look with me at verse 5. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering or purification offering and one ram for an ascension or burnt offering. We learn in verses 7 through 10 that lots are then cast for these two goats that form one purification offering together. One of them is cast for the Lord and he is, that goat is to be slain for the purification offering in phase one where the blood is sprinkled on the three, three, three parts of God's dwelling of the tabernacle precincts. The second lot is cast and designated for Azazel. Verse 10, to be, to be presented alive before the Lord, to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. And that then happens and is narrated in verses 20 through 22. We can't be sure of the meaning of Azazel. This is actually just the transliteration of the Hebrew word. It's just the Hebrew consonants and vowels being put into English consonants and vowels. So it remains in the ESV untranslated. In the NIV, the translation is the traditional one that came in through the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and then the Vulgate as well, used in the earliest English translations by Wycliffe and Tyndale. And that's from the, the translation of scapegoat. And the NIV today still uses, the 2011 NIV still uses scapegoat. Two main theories about Azazel, for those of you who are interested, which I'm sure is all of you. <laughs> the first is that it's a compound word. Um, the word goat and to be cast off or to go away. And that's where we get the traditional interpretation of this word as scapegoat. The second uh, theory is that it is actually the name of a demon, a demon out in the wilderness, and maybe even of the devil himself. Now, those who argue that this is the name of a demon are quick to point out that this goat is not sacrificed to the demon in some ways to placate the demon, but rather is sent away into the wilderness. And again, biblically, the wilderness represents chaos and death, things away from the presence of God. It's sent into the wilderness as an act of contempt and sending back to the realm of the demons sin and uncleanness, which defile God's dwelling place and destroy God's creation. 
Still, it is a bit hard to think of the Lord incorporating a demon at all into the central ritual of his people, risking an improper interpretation of his people that they're somehow placating a demon through this ritual. Um, so I think there are challenges with that reading, but honestly, we can't be sure. And so the ESV, I think wisely, leaves the term untranslated. The good news for us is that it doesn't really matter which of those two Azazel means, because everybody's clear about the significance of this animal and what it's doing. And that's where I want to turn next. The point here is clear. This goat is bearing the burdens, the burden of the sins of Israel in order to remove the burden of those sins from Israel, that those, that burden would not stand in the way of Israel and the Lord's relationship. Verse 10 says this goat is to be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over or on or with it, which is to say whatever preposition we choose, that this goat is the place of focus for the atoning actions that are relayed to us in verses 20 through 22. And there we learn, if you'll look with me at those verses, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The goat departs from the camp, from the tabernacle precincts, and is taken into the wilderness, bearing the responsibility and the guilt of Israel's sin upon itself and accepting the punishment of that sin. Which, what is the punishment of sin? It is to be cut off. And a literal rendering of verse 22 is the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a place cut off, which we could translate it in the ESV to a remote area. But the literal Hebrew is a place cut off. This goat takes the consequence of the sins of Israel upon itself and is banished from the presence of Israel and the presence of the Lord. So that's the second phase. The third phase, much more briefly, is the ascension offerings in verses 23 and 24. We've encountered these before, so I'll skip over this quickly, but these are basically an exclamation point on the acts of cleansing and purification that have already taken place in the chapter. It's a final phase. Aaron bathes again after having gone into the holy place behind the veil, puts on his normal high priestly garments, and offers up these ascension offerings as an exclamation point on making atonement for the sins of the people. It signifies the totality of the action of cleansing that takes place through this ritual. Now, before looking to what it points, our final point, I do need to make one observation here, which comes out of verse 29 and verse 31. And that is to say that these rituals, they don't just kind of work automatically. But God gives instructions to his people about the heart with which they are to come to the day of atonement. So verse 29, you shall afflict yourselves on this day and shall do no work. Again, in verse 31, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you or complete rest to you or a Sabbath of Sabbaths and you shall afflict yourselves. Now, afflicting ourselves there likely means to fast as it does in other places in the Old Testament. It could also mean other forms of self-denial, refraining from standard activities. 
And this was a way of humbling oneself in the presence of the Lord. And then the Sabbath of complete rest or of solemn rest was a way of setting apart this day as a holy day in which Israel would contemplate their sins and the amazing provision of God and not just treat it like every other day where they would go through their normal activities and work. So the day is set apart by being a day of solemn rest. And these instructions to Israel communicate that the ritual here doesn't work without the hearts of the people being aligned with what the ritual signifies, with its intent. For the sins of the people of Israel to be atoned, the people of God are to take up the posture of their heart that is appropriate to this kind of action, of confessing their sins and of receiving God's merciful forgiveness and atonement. Just going through the motions with a proud heart, just treating the day like any other day, would be to miss the whole point. And we might remember this teaching of David in Psalm 51 after his great sin when he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you do not despise. And God asks for his people to come to the Day of Atonement with a broken heart, not just with external actions, as important as those are, but with an internal heart that reflects what is being taught and accomplished through the external actions themselves. There's lessons for us in that, of course, as we seek the forgiveness of God even today. So let's finish then by saying, to what does this point? Because, of course, this wonderful provision of God in Leviticus 16, at the center of Leviticus, at the center of the Pentateuch, at the heart of what God wants to communicate to his people in the Torah, is that God longs to dwell with his people. And there's something significant here going on. Remember, the tabernacle is a kind of mini-cosmos. And the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle is like a new Garden of Eden. Both the Garden of Eden and the Holy of Holies are dwelling places for God. Both are guarded by the cherubim. Both Adam's and the priest's activity are described with the same words. So this moment depicted in Leviticus 16 is a kind of inauguration of a symbolic new creation where God's covenant purposes that he might dwell with man and man might dwell with him are ritually and symbolically fulfilled. Now on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, who is a kind of second Adam, a representative of the people of God, can enter into the presence of God through the blood of the atoning sacrifice. The heart of this symbolic and ritual new creation, represented by the the tabernacle as a mini-cosmos, is that God and human beings can dwell together. This is the closest that, that humanity gets to the presence of God in the Old Testament. This annual ritual when the high priest can go in on behalf of the people. And the way in which this access is provided is what? It is through the high priest bringing the blood of the atoning sacrifice into the very presence of God. Now, we all know, I think we know, this ritual wasn't just given for Israel long ago. But God already knew as he gave the Day of Atonement ritual to his people to signify the new creation that would come about where God would dwell with his people, that he was pointing to a greater day of atonement, a greater fulfillment that would be marked by God and man being together and by the blood of a greater atoning sacrifice being brought into the Holy of Holies, the greater heavenly reality. And it's this greater reality to which all that God does in Christ points us. 
Notice that even in this ritual, in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, notice that all that God has provided in the book of Leviticus for his dwelling to be among his people, that there is still distance, there is still separation. It's still not quite what it could be. So for the average Israelite, God's holy presence was always separated from them by two rooms. They could never enter the holy place. They could never enter the holy of holies. For the average priest, God's presence was always distanced from them by one room. They could go into the holy place, but they could never enter into the holy of holies. But for the high priest, even still, though he enters behind the veil on this one day a year, the day of atonement, God's presence is still removed from him by the cloud that the incense produces to protect him from dying. So even in this greatest of all provisions in the Old Testament, it's still pointing forward to something else, to something greater, to the fulfillment of God's covenant purposes, that he would dwell with us and we would dwell with him through the blood of a greater atoning sacrifice. And we find all of this fulfilled in Jesus, of course. And this is the argument of the author of the book of Hebrews, particularly in Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10. For in Jesus, the author of Hebrews teaches us, we now have a greater high priest, as we've looked at before, a second Adam who was made like us in every way. And he, our representative, then enters in to the holy of holies, though this is not the, this is not the shadow that is uh, made with human hands here on earth, which the high priest Aaron entered into the shadow. But Jesus enters into the Holy of Holies in the heavenly places, the genuine Holy of Holies. He enters in as a full man, as our great high priest, as our true representative. He enters into this holier place, and he does so thoroughly with a greater atoning blood. For as the author of Hebrews will go on to argue, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. There was something in which the bulls and goats that were sacrificed through the, the sacrificial system in Leviticus were indeed symbolically substitutes for the worshipers themselves. But they were only symbolic. They could never really substitute for a human being. A bull or a goat couldn't in fact take the place of a man or a woman made in the image of God. But God set it up in this way to point to the moment when his great son who is made like us in every way, could in fact be our genuine representative and substitute. And so Jesus, the great high priest, enters into the Holy of Holies in the heavenly realm and does so with the greater cleansing blood of his own atoning sacrifice before the Father. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God. Jesus offers a greater blood, and Jesus, of course, is a greater scapegoat. So the author of Isaiah says that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows in Isaiah 53, that the Lord has laid, laid the iniquity of us all upon him, that he was cut off. There's that language. Out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Jesus fulfills the scapegoat imagery here in Leviticus 16 in a fuller way. And Jesus enters into the presence of the Holy of Holies, not just for one day a year and just for a fleeting moment on that day, though beautiful though, though, though it was, but he enters in forever 
taking his place at the right hand of the Father, being seated, having completed his sacrificial priestly work. He now sits in the Father's presence, there living to make intercession for you and for me in the very throne room of heaven. So what of all of this, then, as we close? Well, the author of Hebrews makes a huge deal of this as he seeks to encourage the Christians to whom he writes to live faithfully as disciples of Jesus. When he urges them in chapter 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's about this confidence or this assurance. He says that as he wraps up his argument in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. What happened when Jesus was crucified? Do you remember? The curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that what before was this limited access to the very holy presence of God was now flooding out to be available to all who would come to him through his appointed way, through the atoning blood of his son. So the author of Hebrews says that through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then this is the exhortation. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Have confidence. Enter in with full assurance. Approach the throne of grace because why? Your great high priest is already there interceding on your behalf because you've been cleansed by his greater atoning blood, greater than any goat or bull's blood could ever cleanse. And because he is there as your advocate making intercession, the author of Hebrews says this, you, people of God, in the New Testament era, in the New Covenant, you come to him with confidence and assurance. You enter into the holy place. You have access. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, well, how, how could one like me have access? And I will say to you that the means of access is through repentance and faith. It's simply through it being incorporated into Jesus as we let go of control of our lives and acknowledge that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord of the world. The one to whom we owe all of our allegiance, all of our decisions, all of our money, all of our thoughts, all of our time. And then we, too, can be incorporated into Christ and be with him in the heavenly places, having access with full assurance and confidence to be in the very presence of the Holy Lord of glory. This is an access that is available to every man, woman, and child that would come to Jesus in repentance and faith. And when we do, then we are to take heart. We are to enter into his presence boldly with full assurance with confidence, drawing near to the throne of grace. God has made a way. And this, in a way, summarizes the first half of the book of Leviticus. God has made a way. He has atoned for our sins. He has given us access. Let's enter in. God, we thank you for your great provision in your son, the great high priest. And we thank you for the glimpse that this is of life in your presence and for how that is really ours in the Spirit of God even now. And we look forward, Lord, with hope to the day of consummation when indeed 
the heavenly Jerusalem will come down and earth and heaven will be joined forever and we will dwell in your presence, not looking as through a mirror dimly as we do even now that we behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces, but seeing you face to face. Lord, I pray for all of us this morning that you would grant us confidence and assurance in your abundant provision and atonement for us in Jesus, our high priest, and that we would live our lives this week as those who know that we have access and who therefore can draw near to you. Thank you that you have drawn near to us. In Jesus' name, amen.